This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging, is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today, a conversation with one of the world's leading scientists researching aging and human evolution. Why do we age? What is aging? Are we all pre-programmed to die at a certain age or after a certain point in our lives? Because that's how we evolved. Is there, in fact, anything we can do to postpone or slow down the aging process? I'm in Irvine, in California, to meet Dr. Michael Rose, Director and Professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UCI, University of California, Irvine. The author and co-author of many books on the subject of aging, the evolutionary implications of growing old, the genetic factors at play, and the role of natural selection. The books include Evolutionary Biology of Aging, Does Aging Stop? and The Long Tomorrow. Michael, it's a huge pleasure to meet you. Lots of fun to be here. I've always thought that aging stopped when you die, but (laughs) maybe not. Actually, I, I had exactly the same belief until 1992-93 when two of my colleagues published articles that destroyed or started to undermine at least that belief. And then I, I thought a lot about their data, which seemed to show the stopping of aging. And uh, that's been one of my dominant research themes for the last 25 years. That aging in itself can stop, but life can continue. Well, dying and aging are distinct. Young, healthy animals can die. They can be eaten by another animal. They can die of infectious disease. They can die of accident. So death and aging are separable. Aging is an increase in the rate of dying with age. That's what aging is. In the absence of any increasing external threat, so This is separate from, like, pandemics sweeping through a population. Uh, It's separate from a sudden new predator. It's separate from aliens invading from space and killing a whole bunch of people. So if you have organisms kept under fabulous conditions, like the yuppies of Irvine, um, despite their exquisite diets and frequent shopping trips to Whole Foods and their exercise regimes, they will actually have a steadily increasing rate of death, uh, certainly from the age of 30 onward and onward and onward until much later in life. And one of the big controversies right now is when does aging stop in humans and uh, why does that age shift around and what we could do about it. So it's very important to separate the idea just of dying from aging. Aging is uh, the steady increase in risk of dying in any given year. That was the, the main theme of my research for the first uh, 20, 25 years of my career from the mid-1970s. You have spent much of your career working with fruit flies. <laughs> they have been at the heart of what you've done. Yes. Let's talk about, first of all, the why. Why fruit flies? Purely convenience. And it's the same reason why more than a century ago, Thomas Hunt Morgan started working with fruit flies to figure out the basic problems of genetics. Fruit flies are small inexpensive to rear, and resistant to most pathogens. And he knew this from, he was, Thomas Hunt Morgan was concerned about this because of bitter experience, because he'd worked with aquatic organisms, which frequently die of infection in laboratory settings and are very hard to maintain. And that's long generation numbers and on and on and on. And it was like, you know, he realized that never in his life would he sort out basic problems of inheritance and development by working with aquatic invertebrates. So he fastened upon fruit flies as a system that was incredibly convenient, and indeed they were and still are. And in fact, it would be inappropriate to credit me with much insight in the choice because I was simply told to work with them by Maynard Smith and Charlesworth, my doctoral advisors. (laughs) Clearly, it's a short life cycle. 
which yeah. it goes to the heart mm-hmm. of, of what you're doing. You're looking yeah. at life cycle science. I, I couldn't remotely have done all the things I've done over the last 40 years if I hadn't used fruit flies. In one sense, you could say my career has been, I mean, from my perspective, a slowly incremental thing. I think from the standpoint of many, many of my colleagues, however, to them, it's been kind of surprising and weird and lurching about. But it, the whole arc of it since 76 has been to build on the core theory that William Hamilton created in 1966 that Brian Charles with refined all through the 1970s, which we now call, I mean, I repeatedly call it Hamiltonian, and it's based on the idea of the declining force of natural selection with age, which I think is the fundamental cause of aging, which I also think is one of the most powerful tools that an evolutionary biologist can use to address many, many problems in evolutionary biology, not just aging. It's those declining forces of natural selection, in my opinion, and I'm not alone in this, although I'm probably the you know, noisiest about it, the forces of natural selection are very much analogous to the equations that lie at the core of Einstein's special theory of relativity, which very much dominate literally the universe we live in and you know, make faster than light travel impossible and you know, keep us confined to our solar system, but also, of course, protecting us from hostile alien intelligences from other solar systems. And uh, so that's Einstein's special theory of relativity. Hamilton's forces of natural selection, in my opinion, totally define the arc of our lives from the beginning all the way to the end in ways that, like the impact of Einstein's special theory equations, are often very surprising and take a lot of mathematical and experimental work to tease out. And as I've found over decades, the scale and the power of your experimentation has to be gigantic to really work with those equations. And, you know, sort of like Paul McCartney or John Lennon, I I have lived out my fantasies of working on big theories and big questions to, if anything, a far greater extent than I ever dreamed of at the age of nine. So let's tease out a little bit in terms of what you mean by the declining forces of natural selection Mm -hmm. as we age. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. It's not the way to think of it. These declining forces of natural selection create aging, okay? Just like E equals MC squared creates stars, Okay, so stars arise from the conversion of small amounts of mass in the course of fusion reactions into explosive amounts of energy. Those explosions of energy are stars. All right. So Hamilton's forces of natural selection are much, are really deep. So when they're strong, they are what establishes adaptation to an evolutionary biologist or health to a physician, or for that matter, a normal person, then as they decline, they produce aging. Then as they stop declining, which they inevitably do, they create a post-aging phase of biological immortality, which is very hard to observe, but starting in the 1990s, from the work of colleagues of mine, not my, my own work originally, we have been looking at the post-aging phase. And thanks to the impetus supplied by my colleagues since the mid-90s, explaining how that happened and manipulating it has been a big theme of my research. So there is an inevitability about the aging phase. Ah, thank you, Peter. You have beautifully tripped on a landmine. Uh, I like to do that, which is which is great. You can help me understand. It's 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 like you know asking Donald Trump about his phone call with Vladimir Putin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we won't go in that way. No, 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 no. Let's not. So the key to everything is the trajectory of mortality rates. So I was saying before, aging just doesn't mean dying. Yes, we get older and we die, and now. Aging-associated diseases are the primary cause of death. So unlike any other time in human history, aging is our 
primary Grim Reaper, which was not true before. But this entire arc of Hamilton's forces of natural selection define the analog of the space-time in which physical objects move. A very interesting fact is the people who really established the existence of post-aging, which was actually first done in humans by Greenwood and Irwin in a paper published with disastrous timing in 1939, well, like anybody would care about aging in 1939. The people who really established this phenomenon in every case haven't believed it when they discovered it. So in the original publication in 1939, where you have the first data showing aging coming to a close, the authors of that paper say, but this can't be real. This must be some weird artifact. Then in 1992, when my colleagues Jim Carrey and Jim Kurtzinger first published this data showing that in fruit flies and med flies, it looks like aging comes to a stop, they also didn't believe that that really happened because, because this is very important, the belief that aging is a cumulative process, a progressive physiological process of disharmony and or damage has been the universal belief about aging since Aristotle. Aristotle was really the person who established this view. And that view has absolutely dominated and it still dominates to this day. And the only people who really don't believe that are the people who understand Hamilton's forces of natural selection. I'm amazed that I've produced graduate students who can't even believe that anybody could take seriously Aristotle's assumption because they've been so permeated by the Hamiltonian worldview. Um, Hence the inaccuracy of my presumption that there's some sort of evolutionary inevitability. Exactly. I'll give you the giveaway. And can you stand another analogy to physics? Please do. Okay. So E equals MC squared, the reality of E equals MC squared, one of the core components of the special theory of relativity, has literally been staring humanity in the face every cloudless day our species has been on this planet. Because you look up, I said day advisedly, as opposed to night, because you look up and you see the sun blazing away because of E equals MC squared. The analog of that for the world of aging which you can see in the inter intertidal zone in, you know, when you're on the coast of an ocean, as you are in Southern California, are animals that do not age. Animals that, given enough luck, can live forever. More abundantly away from the ocean, there are things like creosote bushes, juniper, and trembling aspen, where one single plant can live for thousands of years, thousands of years, and show no physiologically detectable aging if they're not trampled, desiccated, uh, or parasitized. Left to their own devices, no aging. How can there be no aging? Well, it's because they have a life cycle in which Hamilton's forces of natural selection do not decline. They have mitochondria, just like we do. They have chromosomes, like our chromosomes. They have telomeres, like we have telomeres. Mm -hmm. They have oxidative damage, like we have oxidative damage. Both animals and plants, multicellular, eukaryotes, Mendelian organisms, no aging. What does that tell you? Well, that should tell you that everybody who offers you any cell molecular reductionist theory of aging is wrong. So how do you apply this to the way that we live our lives? And maybe starting mm -hmm. with yourself, this knowledge, <laughs> these, the theories starting that with you myself. have, I mean, is there a way that we can apply this to the aspiration to live longer and healthier? And the short answer is yes. And I have a website on that called 55 Theses, numerals 55theses.org where I've reduced... 55 uh, different theses or connected? 55 different interconnected sequential theses numbered 1 through 55. Each thesis a sentence. Now, we, we've made some progress since then. I, I first produced those 55 theses for general consumption in on May 5th, 2011, uh, when I was 55. The number arose from a joke. Uh, the year before, in, in 2010... Uh, I was challenged by a person I've never met in person, strictly a, a, an online friend, uh, Rob Patterson. 
And uh, he'd been brought in as a communications consultant for a company I was working with. And he started to ask some of the same questions you've asked today. And as I was going on and on and on, because, you know, I'm a professor, I repeat myself for a living. He went, my God, this is revolutionary. The world has to hear about this. And I said, well, thank you, Rob. I've, I've tried to do that in some of my popular books and articles, but had very little success. And he said, well, you know, you should be like Martin Luther. You should write up your 95 theses and hammer them to the cathedral door. And my immediate reaction, my immediate response to him was, I don't think I can manage 95. How about 55? That was just a you know, turn of phrase. So he said, all right, I'll help you. Reduce everything that you have to say to people like me, and Rob is not afflicted with a scientific education, and I'll distribute to them the world, and I'll make build a website for you. So I said, okay. So I literally reduced the previous then 35 years worth of work to 55 sentences and handed them over to him. The overwhelming point, you know, is there are these deep, powerful equations that William Hamilton first discovered in 1966. And like the Lorentz transformations, which are at the core of Einstein's special theory of relativity, or E equals mc squared, they just resurface and resurface whenever you're doing the math that is at the foundations of how we evolve and, in fact, how anything evolves. You don't have to have sex for the Hamilton's forces to work. You don't have to have Mendelian inheritance. You don't have to be on this planet. You could be anywhere in the universe, and Hamilton's forces would still get you, just like Einstein's equations still get you. So literally, there have been tens of thousands of physicists who've spent their lives since 1905 working up the consequences of Einstein's special theory of relativity and then its application to gravity, space, time, and mass in the general theory of relativity. And those are completely misnomers because the special theory is more general than the general theory is. It's one of those little ironies of usage in science. So there's lots and lots of math. And the math in particular in the 1990s and 2000s led my colleague uh, Larry Muller M-U-E-L-L-E-R, to the explanation for why aging stops in terms of Hamilton's forces. And that in turn led us to more of the gigantic Baroque experiments that we do in my lab that no one else in the world does, except for my colleagues who first discovered the post-aging phase. They did some experiments like ours. So they forced us to up our game still farther. Uh, In the 1980s and early 90s, we were very happy to do experiments that involved hundreds of flies. Since uh, the mid-90s, we routinely do experiments that involve hundreds of thousands of flies being handled by hundreds of people. At a practical level, dealing with that vast number of flies Mm -hmm. in the lab, Mm -hmm. just describe to me what that work is like and what it involves. What that involves is me persuading graduate students and postdocs to do inconceivably large and hard experiments. And then in the past, I would be in the business of supplying them with dozens to up to hundreds of undergraduates each quarter to help them execute those experiments, which be done in uh, hundreds of square feet of lab space over the course of months and years. So we have done mind-boggling experiments, and I love that. How similar are we humans to fruit flies? In other words, how many genes do we share in common? One way to put this is that between 80 and 85% of the genes that are in fruit flies are also in us. And as an evolutionary biologist, 30, 35 years ago, when I was first considering this question, I never would have guessed the number was that high. I would have guessed between 30 and 50%. But I was quite wrong. And we've done experiments where we've looked at the omics of aging in flies and aging-associated diseases in humans, in which we have found that, if anything, the genetics of aging in fruit flies and humans are more similar than the general overall similarity in the genes between flies and humans. Which is, another way to put this, is that the Genetic pathways involved in the control of aging in flies and humans are kind of basic, everyday, widely shared genes common to 
lots and lots of multicellular animals. So common to the the mice and the rats that are clearly oh, yeah. used a lot Ab- in laboratories for this kind of research. Absolutely, except most of the mice and rats that are used in most laboratory research are garbage and not fit for purpose. What do you mean? They're inbred garbage. I say garbage in a very technical sense. They have a terrible capacity to survive and reproduce because they are inbred. And does that mean that the results from experiments using those rats and mice are worthless? Yes. And in fact, there's a vast amounts of data that show that. This is called the reproducibility crisis in biology, where over and over again, other labs also working with rats and mice can't reproduce the first results found with rats and mice on a particular topic. Which goes to the heart of what scientists try to achieve, to replicate If you're not doing reproducible research, you aren't a scientist. And as I like to say, frankly, in a somewhat catty way, you're a biologist. Because biologists, by and large, are not in the business of doing generally reproducible research. They cherry-pick. And they cherry-pick off results with garbage animals, which are... It's not just rats and mice that are inbred. Most fly labs use inbred fruit flies. Nematode labs use some of the most inbred organisms in the world, almost entirely homozygous, um, meaning genetically invariable. And none of those experiments and none of those research models are appropriate for humans who are, you know, we love to upbreed. <laughs> we do not like having sex with our siblings or cousins. That kind of research is a reasonable model for heavily inbred, so-called purebred dog breeds, which have all kinds of idiosyncratic and inconsistent health problems. And if you want idiosyncratic, weird health problems, by all means study inbred rats, mice, fruit flies, or nematodes, results that will be of great significance to solving the problems either of people who inbreed dogs or who have extremely rare genetic diseases that are indeed a health catastrophe for a few percent of the human population. Which raises a much bigger question because a vast uh, amount of longevity research is done using these organisms from fruit flies to nematodes to, to rats and mice. Are you saying that a large percentage of that research can't be trusted? Absolutely. I've been saying that over and over again for decades. There's paper after paper after paper published every day in distinguished publications mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. the world yes. on these issues based on the models that you're talking about, which yes. you say can't be trusted. It does beg the question, mm-hmm. certainly as a layperson looking at this and mm-hmm. looking at reports and often the secondary reports, the newspaper yes. reports based yes. on scientific publications, yeah. Yeah. which we are supposed to trust because they are peer-reviewed studies mm-hmm. with the most distinguished scientists around the world yes. involved. Yes. And you're saying... Uh, I don't think they're scientists, I think they're biologists, but Okay, yes. okay. But you're saying <laughs> in a huge part, they're not worth the paper that they're written on. They're more dangerous than that uh, because they systematically mislead people. In which mm-hmm. area do you think in, in this sphere of research have we been most misled as, as it applies to longevity? Well, interestingly, so, so firstly, if you and your listeners have to be clear, this is a problem that's all across biology. It's not specific to aging. So all kinds of research that's done on you know learning, development, cancer, cardiovascular disease, All that research is plagued by this problem. It's not in any way specific to aging. Interestingly, in aging, this problem is probably most severe. So it's not accidental that by 1980 at the latest, but even earlier, I had a very clear notion of this problem. And a key to my success as an experimentalist has been my systematic avoidance of inbreeding. And my determination to keep my populations outbred, which... With your fruit flies. With my fruit flies. Right. But in aging, it's the most severe because aging is intimately related to fitness, Darwinian fitness, and the decay in the components of Darwinian fitness with age. And you see, inbreeding totally Fs you up. (laughs) So when you're looking at the problem of aging in conjunction with inbreeding, you've got two factors that are messing you up, you being the experimental organism, the inbreeding and the aging. So the problem becomes disentangling them. Well, if you really want to do clean experiments on aging, you just have to prevent the inbreeding problem, which means outbreeding. And only then can you do really consistently reproducible experiments in aging. And 
to be honest with you, my experiments on aging are among the few that are easily reproduced by people who just take the trouble to manipulate Hamilton's forces of natural selection on populations that are not too inbred. Bang, it all works. And it works across a variety of organisms, be they fruit flies, trebolium, which are flower beetles, or rodents. And inadvertently, humans have performed the same experiment over the last two million years uh, because our ancestors uh, several millions of years ago lived half as long. But because of our the advent of higher intelligence and the ability to kill most things that would try to kill us and for us to kill all kinds of things that we would like to devour and to cook them and benefit from them, we lengthen the period in which Hamilton's forces of natural selection are intense and thereby over the last couple of million years of years, evolved at least a doubling of our lifespans. I want to go back to kind of where we started and talking about that post-aging period. Again, relating it to you and I, mm-hmm. our families, yes. our friends, yeah. that post-aging period, it can be extended through lifestyle adaptations? Well, the key is to make it come earlier, <laughs> not to extend it, because right now... On a modern Western diet, it comes very late, at least after the age of 105. Um, so for it to come earlier, in other words, for aging to stop earlier, at an earlier age. That's the trick. At an earlier number, shall we say. Number well, an earlier time in chronological time. Exactly. age. Yeah. Uh, that's been the most interesting thing for me for 20 years. And we've actually shown that we can do it in the lab. So in the lab, using outbred organisms and Hamilton's forces of natural selection, which we tune in the lab, we have produced organisms that stop aging earlier. Right now, behind your head is an example. You can look right over there and you can see 10 populations where we have shifted the, uh, well, it's a total of 20 populations where we've evolved them into two sets of 10, which have different ages at which aging stops. And how did you achieve that? by manipulating Hamilton's forces of natural selection and sustaining that manipulation over dozens of generations of laboratory evolution. So the specific technique we use to do that in a lab are not techniques that are usefully applicable to humans. That was going to be my next question. No. Firstly, over and over again in our lab now for 20 years, we've shown post-aging is real. Secondly, we've shown there's nothing absolute about when aging stops. You can shift it using Hamilton's force of natural selection, the most powerful forces that shape life cycles. And that means in turn that underlying that shift in patterns of aging and the cessation of aging are just changes in perfectly normal gene frequencies. And this year, we've published the genome-wide analysis of How many sites in the genome do you have to change to retune not only patterns of aging, but when aging stops? And the depressing answer is at least hundreds of sites in the genome, uh, which is, you know, as a human being, depressing. As a scientist, it's totally exciting because that's what I've been arguing will be the case once we discover all these sites. I've been arguing that since 1980. So explain this to me. When yes. when aging stops, yes. what is actually stopping? What is actually... In my human the, body. What, what produces the cessation of aging is the flattening out, the cessation of the decline in Hamilton's forces of natural selection. The decline is but, over. But teasing that out, what's changing physiologically? So what is changing body? physiologically? A first order approximation would be everything. A second-order approximation would be, I mean, we're literally working on this problem right now uh, at the level of transcriptomics. So transcriptomically, we know that on the order of three or 400 pathways of transcription are changed, but we're hoping to do a deeper analysis. And by we, I mean, you know, colleagues at UC Irvine, the lab of Larry Muller and uh, his graduate student, Tom Sparter, B-A-R-T-E-R. So a minimum number is probably around 400. There may be up to 1,000 pathways. The number, I would guess, is somewhere between 400 and 1,000 central pathways. It's a similar order of magnitude to the number of sites in the genome you have to alter. One of the consequences of Hamilton's forces of natural selection, which took me about 35 years to figure out 
And I only feel less stupid about that because no one else figured it out uh, <laughs> ahead of me, is that Hamilton's forces of natural selection also tune a population's adaptation to environmental change so that young people adapt very quickly to changed environments, diets, and ways of life, and older people are a lagging indicator, a, a, have a lagging response time. And the concrete payoff for this is as follows. Humans shifted, or the vast majority of humans shifted to an agricultural way of life, you know, 5,000 to 10,000 years ago. Young people are very well adapted to agricultural diets, contrary to the assertions of paleo enthusiasts. But the older you get, the less adapted you are to the agricultural diet. And what you have left as residual adaptation is adaptation to a non-agricultural diet and way of life, which doesn't mean steak three times a day, seven days a week. Does it mean a processed diet? Well, processed foods are entirely novel. They're just specific to the last 120, 130 years. They were introduced chiefly by the American food industry in the late 19th century. So things like, for example, cooking with vegetable oil is entirely novel. Humans didn't do that at all before the 1880s or 90s. I mean, no one should eat novel agricultural foods from artificial sweeteners to seed oils to soda. I mean, soda is, or pop as some people call it, mm. fizzy beverages. Drinks that come in cans. Cans, sometimes bottles, yep. sometimes giant plastic bottles. Yeah. It's pure poison. It's, it's type 2 diabetes in a commercial product. And it's only gotten worse with the substitution of high fructose corn syrup for regular sucrose. And you mentioned seed oils? Seed oil is also a completely novel type of food. I mean, obviously, the famous example is trans fats, which are processed seed oils, pure poison. I mean, literally poison. They get into your the intima of their blood vessels and give rise to increasing blood pressure, atherosclerosis, heart attacks, strokes. So, you know, if you go to most supermarkets are full of food that absolutely no one should eat. Um, then especially in the center. Especially in the center, exactly. It's the center aisles. It's all the things they make their money off of. Every, anything that comes in a brightly colored and patterned cardboard box, don't touch it. You know, healthy, organic produce, agricultural produce is what young people need. And by young, um, I mean under 40. I don't mean under 20. And you're still aging at that point. Well, it has to do with the tuning of aging. Uh, so this, this retunes aging. And for people over 40 from everywhere, I can say unequivocally you should fade out the use of agricultural foods, which means anything derived from a grain, a grass species, or, or milk. Cow or human, doesn't matter. Meat. So what we have been eating for more than a million years in our evolutionary history, is a primarily cooked omnivorous diet, which in terms of bulk is not meat. In terms of bulk, it's all kinds of plant stuffs, salady things, nuts, cooked tubers and roots, you know, anything from, you know, your bo boiled parsnip to your baked potato, yams, and eggs, and interestingly, honey, fruit, animal organs when we could get them, and least of all, what we call meat. And are you saying these are okay after the age Those of are all okay at every age. Right. And uh, those are the only foods that people should consume after the age of 40. Um, the theory for this is pretty well worked out. We talk about it in our book, Does Aging Stop? But this is our most recent aging research, and we have a paper we've just submitted to a famous journal that I won't name because they'll probably reject it where we actually have very powerful experimental data and, and mathematical theory that ties it all in together. It's the work of my graduate student, Grant Rutledge. And uh, it's extremely beautiful work as a scientist. And I'm very proud of what he's accomplished. And it's probably the last thing I'll be doing on aging uh, as such. I'm basically handing off the aging project to Grant 
and seeing how he makes his way in the world with it, especially the the human application of what we've done. Just going back to diet and the food groups that you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. is that how you live your life? Yes. And has your, clearly from what you've said, your Mm -hmm. diet will have changed over the years, deliberately changed. Uh, Here's an irony. I love ironies, even when they're at my expense. So one of the things that helped me realize this particular corollary of Hamilton's force of natural selection, which is a mathematical corollary, was a meeting I had with a gastroenterologist in uh, January of 2009. The weekend, a friend of mine died of esophageal cancer. And I had all of these distressing upper GI tract symptoms, which I'd had for about a decade. And I'd never got any useful diagnostic insight into it until I met this uh, gastroenterologist from South Africa. He said, look, I don't want to hear what any physician has told you before. I want to hear what you did about your problems with your stomach and your esophagus. And I told him, well, I mean, I have food allergies. I know I have food allergies. I was diagnosed with these allergies decades ago. So I'm basically fine that if I avoid the things that I'm allergic to, my stomach and esophagus do better. He said, okay, I can do one of two things for you right now as a physician. I can either give you regular corticosteroids. I immediately interrupted him and said, I don't want to do that. I know what the long-term effects of continued corticosteroid use are, and they are ugly. He said, quite right. And the alternative is that you go farther. You go farther with food restriction. You become more restrictive and more diligent about your diet. And then he said, roughly speaking, and most patients can't do that. And I said, oh, no, I think I can do that. So I did that. And what I discovered, in part from my knowledge of the phylogeny of the foods that I was eating, was that the foods that gave me trouble fell into three groups. Foods that came from grass species, which I have easily diagnosed allergy to. Um, Anything derived from milk, which I also have obvious food allergy to. And uh, because I'd shown favism in the past, anything derived from cultivated beans from lentils to fava beans to soybean. I eliminated all three of those groups over the next six months. And my esophageal symptoms and my stomach symptoms all calmed down. I thought, fantastic, great gastroenterologist. And then I'm continuing with this for another additional six to eight months. And then I notice, wow, everything about my health, my stamina, my ability to focus, they've all gotten much better over the last six to nine months. Why? As in, what the hell? And then I thought, oh my God, Hamilton's forces can explain this. And I basically intuited the math that we would later do, which worked, and indeed the experiments that showed the math is right. And that's how I got the idea over the period from 2009-2010, which led me to the 55 Theses, which led me to proposed the theory done primarily by Larry Muller and the experiments done by Grant Rutledge, my graduate student. And it all works beautifully. With this uh, work, you can basically show that you can greatly attenuate the severity of aging. And in the case of humans, some theory suggests you can make the age at which we stop aging earlier in part because of some unusual features of our ancestors before agriculture, which is they had very small population sizes and killed each other quite a lot in tribal warfare, murder, all that fun stuff that humans get up to when there are no law enforcement. And that is my chief hope for an immediate intervention. I've had friends, frenemies, colleagues, whatever, in the aging community say, well, that's not enough, Michael, and they're quite right. So recently we developed a overall strategy we call four steps to the to the conquest of aging uh, which we've published that's somewhat implicit in the 55 theses but it takes less time to read that one article can you summarize the, i'm very the four happy steps? to the four steps are firstly stop effing arguing about the causes of aging it, the exact same problem afflicts aging that afflicted the problem of contagious diseases from 1840 when the germ theory of contagious disease was first proposed to the 1890s when Pasteur basically triumphed over the opposition. It wasn't until that controversy was really over 
as far as the general public and the medical community was concerned, that we really started to make progress with contagious disease. It's the first step. The second step is taking advantage of all the immediate kind of public health measures you can use. In the case of contagious disease, that was physicians washing their hands before they saw patients, people who provided services to people, making sure the water was clean, not contaminated, sterile operating theaters, antiseptic, a whole idea of antisepsis all comes from the triumph of Pasteur. So that's the second step. With respect to aging, I would say that means living and aging your age-appropriate lifestyle. So when you are a 20-something, you should not be chugging Red Bull and Coca-Cola and sitting on a couch playing video games 24-7. You should be active. You should be walking. You should be eating organic foods, organic bread, organic whatever you like, and nothing that your great-great-grandmother didn't eat. Is there any stage in, in your life when that behavior is appropriate? The sitting on the couch, watching yeah. If you're games. if you're afflicted with a life threatening virus, yeah. In 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 extremis, you don't exercise. Uh, some exercise okay. freaks don't accept that. But no, you shouldn't go running when you have in, in Central Park in January when you have a flu virus because that may become pneumonia and you may die ten days later. Uh, sorry, exercise freaks. Uh, yes, there are times when it's appropriate to be sedentary. Okay. But not really ages. There are times. Right. Um, or similarly, when you're an infant. You know, infants shouldn't be put through strenuous exercise regimes. That's not what their lives are about at that time. But as you get older, in term, this is all part of step two. You should have your age-appropriate lifestyle, which means taking advantage of what's in your genome. And when you're 50, or in my case, over 60, we really don't have useful, if you will, instructions in our genome for being a 60-something and eating agricultural foods. We don't. So you're better off avoiding them systematically, which I do. And in my case, the I would probably literally be dead if I hadn't been inadvertently doing that for decades and systematically doing it for the last uh, decade. So just summarize, mm-hmm. what what is your diet? What do you eat? I try to do a organic grocery store emulation of an, what we call an ancestral diet from before agriculture. Now, interestingly, Grant Rutledge's experiments show that even such a half-assed emulation of an ancestral diet does indeed work and does indeed give you health benefits. And uh, the data are absolutely beautiful. I mean, they're gigantic. I mean, it was another experiment with hundreds of thousands of flies, but they're overwhelming. So that's step two. Step three, I'm basically stealing from the late 19th century into the first half of the 20th century, which is you take advantage of bits and pieces of biology that fit with the overall structure of your theory. So in the case of the contagious germ theory of disease, you do things like vaccination, which for reasons they didn't even know up until you know the middle of the 20th century, work to protect you from particularly viruses. You use antibiotics, which kill bacteria. You use those little things that you find without truly understanding the problem. And that's literally what uh, this company, Lyceum Pharmaceuticals, is about. It's about trying to find routes to less than perfect but still effective interventions that would be pharmaceuticals, probably, or they could be biologics. And I say pharmaceuticals in the sense of like, pills that you take as opposed to injections of, you know, live things you might have or provision of cells, that roughly speaking, we can guess will work. We can do experiments guided by the overall structure of Hamiltonian theory of aging to find solutions to specific aging problems like heart disease, um, kidney disease, type 2 diabetes, which will at a minimum greatly ameliorate them. So, You know, the biggest progress in terms of numbers of lives saved came from public health measures with respect to the contagious disease theory. Um, It was literally the clean water, the clean operating theaters, the physicians attending patients in hospitals who had washed their hands that saved most of the lives. Then the second wave of life-saving was vaccination antibiotics in the middle of the 
uh, 20th century. It was only really after the 1950s when we learned a lot about molecular and cell biology that we started to use really advanced tools to attack contagious diseases. If it hadn't been for that fourth step, the really global understanding of the details of all the biology, in that case of viruses and bacteria. It's only because of that that, for example, we successfully fought HIV to a standstill. Absent the knowledge that we accumulated from 1950 to 1980, HIV would have been a complete disaster. So those are the four steps. Number one, agreeing on what the fundamental scientific truth is. There's no such agreement about aging right now. Number two, taking kind of public health measures, little simple lifestyle steps that... Cleanliness. In the case of contagious disease, cleanliness. Number three, finding some ad hoc interventions that work that in ways that you can semi-understand in terms of the science, even if you don't know all the details, which lay at the foundations of the development of modern-day vaccination and antibiotics, contagious disease, which the hope is right now that we can use some of the insights derived from my kind of research to create chronically used medications that are like statins, only unlike statins, really work with fewer side effects. I mean, statins almost semi a little bit work, but they're really crappy drugs. Mm. Um, If we can create drugs that are 10 to 20 times more effective than statins with a tenth of the side effects, I'd be a happy man. I think that would be wonderful. Um, That's what Larry Cabral's company, Lyceum, is all about. Just to explain, we're yes. actually at Lyceum right now. We, hence yeah. your references. This is where we're, we're recording we're the interview. We're sitting the pharmaceutical in company. the facilities of this, what I call fetal pharma. It's not even baby pharma. It hasn't really been given birth to. In and and Larry, who you mentioned, is, is your colleague who as well. Larry was my graduate student. And fortunately, I've been surrounded by extremely hardworking, dedicated graduate students and postdocs who like to say to me things like, well, why don't we do something about this? And I'll say, it's very hard. It'll take a long time. They'll say, I'm up for it. So I go, wow, great to be young. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I love good medicine. Um, good medicine has saved my life on multiple occasions. Most of us alive today have probably had our lives saved at least once by modern medicine, um, most especially just from vaccination number one best truly medical intervention although frankly clean water and hand washing and save more lives unfortunately the medical ideas which are put forward by people in the aging research community are almost entirely useless if not actively dangerous so i unfortunately have friends who will take dozens to hundreds of supplements based on mediocre to terrible aging research that they think they think those supplements are going to save them and my expectation is that they're killing themselves slowly by damaging their kidneys or livers sometimes both you don't use supplements i well an interesting fact about getting older which someday you'll learn about peter is uh what age are you i'm about to turn 62 there's not that much between us. There's seven years between us. All right. I'm 55. Well, you're very well preserved. <laughs> Good. I try. Uh, and so are you. I've got to say, people, this is audio. We, we can't see you. But you, <laughs> you look, and I have played this game with nearly uh, most of my guests. You, you look as if you could be in your late 40s. Well, th- thank you. That's very flattering. But I don't, uh, it's, it's not the years, it's the it? mileage. No, I, I, I actually feel much younger than I felt 10 years ago, thanks to the diet, in my opinion, chiefly. But no, I've had a lot of mileage in my life, which I write a little bit about in The Long Tomorrow. So I feel ancient emotionally. Uh, but <laughs> Some people call it wisdom. Hard-bought wisdom. Uh, very expensive uh, wisdom. I don't recommend it. <laughs> and in exactly the same spirit, Peter, I would argue that, given your age, which you've confessed, you need to stop eating bread. You need to stop eating you know, all kinds of other foods derived from grains. You need to stop eating foods derived from milk. You need to stop eating foods derived from beans. All so that's milk, butter, yogurt, cheese, cheese, all those delicious foods. Absolutely, and I love them all. My favorite, my favorite lunch is French bread with good French cheese. And when was the last time you had that? The last time I would have had that 
on the order of 20 years ago. Yeah. Are you strict? You never treat uh, yourself? As uh, no, I don't. Well, once you, you see the body, the, you can experience the power of evolution and Hamilton's forces at your age. I get my best results from people in their 50s. If you fully embrace my advice for a year and then say, well, it's my birthday. I'm going to have cake with, you know, wheat, flour, and all this dairy. Yeah. You will become egregiously sick within 12 hours. You will feel like you're dying. And my friends who, who believe in me enough to take my advice and do what I recommend now publicly for a year have all felt some version of this when they stray. <laughs> See, in my case, I'd have to be hospitalized because my esophagus would close up. And uh, soon I'd be getting into respiratory complications from that. And, uh, you know, I might not live through those 12 hours. Just Can you just give me an example, just so mm -hmm. we can visualize mm -hmm. in a day, mm -hmm. what do you eat? I start off the day with things like, and it's all organic and it's all preservative-free. So this morning I had eggs with nitrite, nitrate-free ham. And Are you meticulous on the source of the eggs? Yeah, yeah, organic. Well, when something is organic in the United States, that means something because they're very strict rules. So it's organic, cage-free, and, you know, some type of herbal tea and uh, a little bit of honey in the tea, and I'm good. And for lunch and dinner? I usually don't eat lunch. No lunch? Okay. Yeah, so one, of, two, one of the things that happens... Sometimes one. Uh, one of the things that happens when you go on this diet is you realize that what you used to call hunger is just a reflection of your addiction to agricultural foods. So if you eat one meal a day, that's fine. You know, so it's a lot easier to be a caloric restrictor on this diet because you don't feel gnawing hunger. You know, unless you haven't eaten in 36 or 48 hours, then you, you'd feel hungry. But it's a completely different way to experience food. And, you know, so for dinner, I might have some chicken. I might have some pork, lamb. I rarely eat things like steak. Lots of salady type stuff or, you know, potatoes, organic potatoes again, carrot. It's not completely weird. I mean, it's... It sounds it, a fairly normal dinner, actually. Yeah, it, 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 you're just not eating bread at every meal. You're not drinking glasses of milk. You're not having cheese on everything. You're, you know, and this, of course, leaves aside the idea of having soda or food cooked in corn oil, which, of course, we don't use in our house. I, I do m much of the cooking. All, all those things are gone. Coffee, alcohol? So there's lots of evidence that we have been consuming moderate amounts of alcohol for tens of millions of years. Uh, primates love fermented fruit. Some monkeys go to great trouble to get fermented fruit. We, we have normal, most people on the planet have good alcohol dehydrogenase uh, and are very good at consuming alcohol. And I intermittently consume diluted alcohol. But I'm, I'm not a real connoisseur of like wine or anything. Uh, and I do dilute it a lot because high concentrations of alcohol are bad for your GI tract epithelium. And coffee, caffeine? There's fantastic data on coffee and, and chocolate. You know, it's interesting. Animal-derived stimulants are ubiquitous across human cultures. Pre-agricultural, post-agricultural, doesn't matter. Humans love the botanical arts. And that's something that we sort of lost track of culturally, especially Western Westerners. But this is one of the great human universals, is knowledge of literally plants that get you high or give you energy or make you feel good. That's something people have probably been doing for, again, hundreds of thousands to millions of years. Because one of our adaptations before we ever became smart was probably food processing, not, not in the sense of industrial food processing, but finding foods, primitive forms of cooking them or washing them. And, and we have evidence now that other primates do it too, separately from it, discovering anything that we do. So 
I mean, to give you some concrete instances, there's little evidence that humans normally consume, for example, large amounts of raw meat. That's a complete myth. There's little evidence that we do very well on large amounts of raw plant matter. We do best when we cook those foods. I mean, I'll give you just two points of evidence for it. First, our dentition, which is the dentition of an omnivore, not a carnivore, but also not the dentition of a herbivore. We have omnivore dentition. Secondly, we have not only an omnivore GI tract, which is not particularly good at eating raw meat or serving as an incubator for endosymbionts the way a ruminant or, for that matter, a horse is. Um, Our digestive tracts are specialized for consuming cooked-slash-processed foods and extracting nutrients from them. That's what we're really good at. We're really good at eating cooked animal tissues and cooked tubers and things like that and absorbing those nutrients. Some of my colleagues think that we've been cooking tubers for several million years before we ever became meat eaters. Do you include an element of fasting in your regime? Well, as I just said to you, you know, if I I don't eat for 24 hours, it's no big deal. And that's... But is it in fact a positive? I think the quality of your diet is vastly more important than intermittent fasting, but I think intermittent, intermittent fasting is great. I routinely don't eat anything for you know, 16 to 18 hours in a 24-hour period. So I routinely don't eat anything after 7 until anywhere from 10 to 2 p.m. the next day. And my body's perfectly fine with that. Intermittent fasting is incredibly hard if you're eating an agricultural diet because your body literally becomes addicted. So it's a physiological habituation. Whereas on the kind of diet I recommend... You can tell that you've done it successfully if you don't feel hunger pangs within 12 hours. I was quite shocked when I made my dietary transition, first on the advice of a gastroenterologist, to discover how much my cognitive function had dialed back about 20 years. That was amazing for me. And that, since most of my friends are academics like myself, that's the number one thing that keeps them straight and clean is that they're smarter, as they would put it have more intellectual stamina, and can just get vastly more of our kind of nerdy work done. This has been fascinating. I'm going to go to the website and read about this in detail, because I feel we've we've touched the surface in this interview, but there's a lot more to learn. I want to ask you, just in closing, you've mentioned the Hamilton theory many, mm. many times during mm. the course of the interview. Mm. Is it possible? Is mm. it possible for you to encapsulate that theory in a thought that is, is easy to get? Uh, some of your listeners will have seen the film Gone with the Wind. Yep. And Gone with the Wind is really a story of progressive male exasperation with a difficult woman. Until at the end of the movie, Scarlett O'Hara asks Rhett Butler, but what will I do? Where will I go? And he responds, frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a damn. And that's what happens with Hamilton's Force of Natural Selection. When it's like when you're young, it's in love with you. And as you get older, it gets more and more exasperated until finally it's done with you. And then you're at a level of low adaptation, which is stable. So Scarlett so didn't die after, This is the post-aging. This is the post-aging right. phase. You know, Clark Gable has walked out that door and he's not coming back. <laughs> So you're going to have a kind of miserable existence, Scarlet, but you're still alive. And that's the period that we want to work on. Yes. Well, that's, that's the period. Firstly, we would like to be better and earlier. So the two parts to really defeating aging, you know, when all four steps have been done, is we will no longer have a really severe process or period of aging. It will come to a stop. And once it comes to a stop, we'll have good enough health to be able to live indefinitely. In other words, indefinite lifespans with enough assistance from our physicians who by then, which I think is on the order of 60 to to 80 years from now, will then be able to tend to these people in stable health indefinitely subject to literally car accidents, acute infections, or, you know, you know, a weird aneurysm. 
So in a hundred years' time, in a hundred, a hundred years from now, met absent, you know, a thermonuclear war or any kind of fun like that. Absent that, physicians will have the capacity to keep people alive indefinitely. On that note, Michael Rose, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. Just before we go, a reminder that on this podcast, we don't give out any medical advice. We share, we discuss ideas like the kinds that we've been hearing today. But of course, if you're considering adopting a new diet, whatever the diet is, you should talk to your doctor first. The Llama Podcast is a Right Angles production. I'd love to hear your feedback on the interviews that we do, and you might want to suggest topics for the future. You can contact us through our website at llamapodcast.com, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. Thanks for listening. Flexbeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the Flexbeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. Flexbeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a Flexbeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.